If, if you notice, I, I think Brenda put this, and I did not. Um, there's the title, Hardening Humility and Hope, and then it says Exodus 4.14, but that's not Exodus chapter 4, verse 14. That's Exodus chapter 4 through chapter 14. Um, and, and so uh, as, as much as I love note-taking, and, and I think God's people should study and take notes, etc. This might be one of those mornings where it might be better to listen. And then I think it gets posted, the message gets posted to Facebook fairly quickly. And then it's on the church website a, a day or two after that. And as most of you know, I preach from a full manuscript. So if you want to go a little bit deeper into this or even simply remember what was said and what, what texts were referenced... Um, let me know, and I'll be happy. Some of you already do this, but I'll be happy to email you a full manuscript. So, so maybe just relax this morning and listen, because I'm going to say some things, and we're going to go fairly quickly through a lot of material, and uh, I don't want you to miss critical things, because you're, I can't write and think at the same time for the most part, or at least write and listen at the same time. Maybe you can, so don't let me restrain you if you feel well-equipped to do that, but I, I would want to free you maybe to just relax and listen. Keith already mentioned our prayer list. Um, there's a lot of cancer on it. There's a lot of chronic pain on it. We have brothers and sisters, and their bodies and their minds, in some cases, are not working as they once did. I think I get the prayer list on Thursday from Brenda. And then Friday, I got a message from Will Lopez, as several of you did. And Will wanted us to pray for a family that was good friends of Hannah, his wife, since she was very young. Um, this family has six kids, and the father took three of them to the beach, and a wave lifted him up and threw him onto the beach, and he broke his neck. And it was his own children at times giving him CPR, but to no avail. Neck swelled up. Oxygen to the brain was shut off, and he died. He leaves behind six children, four adopted. That was Friday. Yesterday, I get a text from Buzz that says, Hey, I'm, I'm sorry I'm not going to be there tomorrow. Uh, Sandy's mom is going from hospice probably to home, what they call compassion care. It doesn't look good. Welcome to life. This is hard. This morning, I wish I was preaching from Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, you are with me. Or maybe from the upper room discourse and, and the priestly prayer, Father, keep them. I've kept them, now you keep them as he prays for the disciples. Or, or I would settle for Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sin, made us alive together with Christ. I want a word of encouragement. I want a word that will lift us up and walk us through this prayer list and walk us through a broken neck and walk us through a dying mother. And we're in Exodus. And yes, I'm aware that it says that this is a book about redemption, and it is a book about redemption, but there's a lot of pain and heartache and death before you get to the redemption. There are wicked kings and drowned babies. 
There are plagues and suffering, and in the end, the country is all but destroyed. Where's the hope? Where's the hope for you? Where's the hope for somebody who might wander into a church like this and say, I, I don't know this God. Do I want to know this God? If you've read Exodus, you might have wondered, were all these terrible things really necessary? I mean, put yourself in Pharaoh's place. I, I get it that you might not be real warm to the idea of letting about a half a million slaves take a two-week vacation from work. That's not how kings treat their slaves. But you know, maybe after the third or fourth plague, you might change your mind. A lot of evidence there that this wasn't just a few Hebrews with a made-up story saying, let us go. A lot of evidence that there's a powerful God with them and behind them and he is simply speaking through them, and Pharaoh really ought to listen. But of course, Pharaoh doesn't listen. Doesn't listen after the first plague or the fifth. He listens for a little while after the tenth, when all the firstborn, every household, sees a death. But even then, he changes his mind. And the most foundational reason, this is insanity, by the way, the most foundational reason given in the book of Exodus for why Pharaoh was so incredibly stubborn in the face of what would turn out to be a very reasonable request is that the Lord hardened his heart. We read this in Exodus 4.21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. When something shows up once in Scripture, we need to take it seriously. We don't get to say, well, that just showed up once. It's not important. But when something shows up again and again and again, it becomes more incumbent upon us to take it seriously. And this theme of the hardening of Pharaoh shows up repeatedly. In fact, it's 10 times in chapters 4 through 14. I'm not going to read all 10, but I'll give you two more because I want you to see how clear and how common this is. Exodus 7, 3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Exodus 9, 12, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Those are just the first three of ten explicit statements that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's three more in chapter 10, there's one in chapter 11, and there are three more again in chapter 14. Ten statements, they're clear, they are unambiguous. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But they're not the only statements in Exodus about Pharaoh's heart. There are three statements in the same section that state that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Here's one of them. Exodus 9.34 But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So there's a second category. There, there's ten statements, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's three that says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then there's a third category, and there's five of these, where it simply says his heart was hardened and it attributes it neither to God nor to Pharaoh. We're left not knowing the ultimate cause. Exodus 7, 13, Still, 
Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. All told, there's 18 statements in 14 chapters to the effect that Pharaoh's heart was hard. Eight of them, the ones that attribute either to Pharaoh hardening his own heart or that attribute it to no one at all, I suspect we have little trouble with. We should be grieved, rightly, that any human being would have a hard heart or would knowingly harden their heart against the Lord, but we know we're sinners, we know it happens, and as long as it is the individual doing so, acting to harden their own heart, we tend to let it go without a lot of thought. But that's not the bulk of what we're told. The bulk of what we're told ten times is that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that has, from the very beginning, been a concern for some. We'll see this, for example, or we do see this in Paul's letter to the Romans. It's, it's been a source of argument and contention and disagreement among God's people for a long time. And I'm aware of that. I do not imagine that we're going to answer, begin to answer, every question that might be asked about the hardening of Pharaoh this morning, partly because of the limitations of a single message and partly because I believe there's some mystery that surrounds us. We are going to ask questions. I want to ask why God does it. I want to ask how he does it. And I want to ask how we might respond in light of what we see in Scripture for the why and for the how. But before we begin those, I wonder if we might start by making a few, for lack of a better term, neutral observations. We already all know that we can disagree about this, but are there things that we can agree about? Are there things that we can look at in Scripture and say, I agree with that on this very hard subject? And I think there are a few. And the first is this. I hope that we can agree that God does not want us to overlook this truth. If you want somebody to overlook something, you don't say it ten times. You don't import it from the Old Testament to the New Testament in a book as prominent as Romans. You sneak it in, one verse, back of an obscure book, Habakkuk, and hope nobody reads it. It's not what God did. He put it before us ten times. However problematic the doctrine is that we wrestle with, whatever disagreements we may have of how it works itself out in real life, can we at the very least agree on this? God wants us to think about it. He puts us before us and says, this is who I am. This is what I do. Work it out and give it thought. It is not insignificant. It is significant. The second thing I hope we could agree on is that a tenfold repetition of something like this indicates God is not embarrassed by it. He's not ashamed of it. That may sound like a funny way to say something, but I phrase it that way because I think sometimes we are embarrassed by it. And we are ashamed by it. What do you mean your God hardens a heart? What kind of God does that? And if we don't have a ready answer to that, if we're wrestling with it ourselves, we would just as soon that that stay under the radar and be a subject that doesn't come up. The hardening of Pharaoh has always been a cause to question the justice of God, to infer that if he really acted the way it appears that he acted, well, then we have ought against him and we can criticize him and 
we don't think God should be criticized, and so we're a little bit embarrassed by the subject, but I would simply point out that God does not seem to share that embarrassment, that he wants us to know at least some things about how he works in Pharaoh's heart and in human hearts. I want to be careful here. There are some things that we can't answer, not in this message and not if we preached a hundred more. I say that because of Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God does have secret things. I think some of them are related to subjects like this. But where he has revealed things, they are for us to talk about, think about, study, submit to, live in light of, and not be embarrassed by. And finally, a third thing that I think we should note on this tenfold repetition is that it occurs in Exodus, which I would argue means that this is probably foundational for all of life. And I say that because the themes of Exodus are foundational for all of life. There are themes of oppression and slavery, the powerful and the powerless. We have competing gods and competing powers as the magicians duplicate at least some of the miracles that Moses and Aaron do. There are themes of faith and unbelief, themes of delivery and of judgment, of God's people as aliens in a foreign land on their way to a promised land. Exodus is full of redemptive themes that we are living out and walking out today in the church in America and around the world. We have an exodus in our future as we are delivered from a land where we are, the New Testament says, strangers and aliens, just as the Hebrews were, into a good land of our own where we can worship God without fear for all eternity. So we should read Exodus and see, exodus and see not just history, but also be aware that we're reading a model, a template for how God does faithfully redeem and deliver his people. And it's in this context that is so rich with meaning for us all with foreshadowings of what is to come, that God says, I want you to know, and so I'm going to tell you ten times, I hardened Pharaoh. In a word, the hardening of Pharaoh is not a rabbit trail. It's not diverting our attention from the real story of redemption. This is a reality, I would argue, that's at the very heart of the story of redemption. Our existence as Christians, including our hope and our security, and the call to the unconverted, this is a God you have to deal with, has much to do with what's happening in Exodus, with Pharaoh, with Moses, and with the people of Israel. So my hope is, at, at the very beginning, that I've not yet said anything that we really disagree on. This is a theme we're not to miss why it's repeated. This is a theme that we're not to be ashamed of. God sure doesn't seem ashamed of it. And this is something that really is foundational to our understanding of redemption and deliverance. It comes in Exodus, the book of redemption and deliverance. But with that as introduction, I want to ask three questions now about the hardening of Pharaoh. Questions are these. What's the purpose does God give us any idea why he acts this way, knowing? We're going to argue about it. 
We're going to struggle with it. This is going to be a hard thing. That's the first question. Second question is, how does it happen? But what does God actually do to make Pharaoh behave, as I've said and would, would argue and maintain, insanely? His rage and his behavior makes no sense. And finally, how should we respond? Because we ought to respond. So first, what is the purpose for the hardening of Pharaoh? Exodus answers the question clearly, I believe, and repeatedly. In fact, he says this entire drama that make up the first 14 chapters of Exodus is so that the Egyptians will know that he is the Lord. Exodus 7.1 The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So God's going to free the people. Pharaoh is going to let them go. But it seems to me he could have let them go maybe after one or two plagues. But if he did that, the Egyptians might look and say, you know something, something odd's going on. We have magicians and they can do some magic arts and they've got their people and they can do some magic things and we see a kind of a power conflict happening here. Thank goodness Pharaoh had the good sense to let these people go. Or the compassion to let them go. And the response of the people might be to say, our Pharaoh was wise and not, that's God, as they consider the Lord. That theme repeats itself often. A warning is given to Pharaoh, let my people go. If you don't, there's going to be a plague. Pharaoh says, I'm not going to do it. The plague comes. Pharaoh cries out for relief. And sometimes says, I'll let them go. Sometimes says, I'm not going to let them go. When he says, I'm going to let them go, he changes his mind nine times out of ten. And all of this is happening so that Egypt will know that the Lord is God. Exodus 5 really sets the stage for all this. Exodus 5.1, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh's mocking question, who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord. It is the backdrop for what's happening here and for God saying, you will know the Lord. Egypt will know the Lord. Exodus 7.17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus 8.10, 
be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Exodus 8.22, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. It's clear. God has a purpose that Egypt may know. Pharaoh starts out saying, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. And God says, you will. If you want to know, though, why Pharaoh, after 10 increasingly devastating plagues, changed his mind and said, in essence, you know something? We've been beaten up by God 10 times now. It's culminated in the death of our firstborn children in every household in Egypt. But you know something? I think I'm ready for one more round. And he chases Israel. He goes after them. Why did he do that? Exodus 14, 4. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and over all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. It's clear. And there's one more, and, and, and this one is interesting. W whatever craziness you ascribe to Pharaoh in resisting God in the ten plagues, and, and then the firstborn are dead, and it's really crazy now to say, hey, let's go one more round, God, as he chases down the, chases down the, the children of Israel. But now picture this. You've just seen miracle after miracle after miracle that the God of the Hebrews has done for the Hebrews at the cost to the Egyptians, and now you get to the edge of the sea, and there's a wall of water on your left and a wall of water on your right. I've got an idea. Let's walk between it. I'm serious when I say this guy's crazy. His rage, his rebellion against God has made him insane. Nobody does that. And he did it. And Pharaoh and his entire army are drowned. Exodus 14, 17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So to the question of Pharaoh in Exodus 5, who is the Lord? I don't know him. God says you will. And you will with great cost and with great pain because you rebel against me instead of submit to me. I mentioned earlier, God could have solved this. God could have freed his people much quicker. In fact, in Exodus 9, he says, you know something? I could have sent a pestilence upon you, basically a, a, a physical plague. So everybody's sick and everybody dies, kind of a black plague kind of thing. I could have sent a pestilence upon you and wiped you out, and my people could have walked free without any of this drama. He didn't do that, did he? In Exodus 9.16, quoted by Paul in Romans 9.17, says this, But indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain, in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. It isn't just that Pharaoh will know who God is, and it isn't just that 
The Egyptians will know who God is, but as you read through the book of Exodus, you find out the world is finding out who God is. If you want to know why Rahab repented, look at Exodus. The hardening of Pharaoh is not an easy doctrine to get our head around, but it's a prominent theme. God has not kept it secret. It occurs in a book that's foundational for understanding redemption, and it has a great purpose. There's mystery to it. We cannot address that today, at least not any more than in passing. But I hope the list of things that we can agree on is growing. But now let me ask, how does the hardening of Pharaoh's heart actually work? What did God do to harden his heart? I think there's at least two things that need to be said, and I pray that they're helpful and may also become points of agreement. A friend of mine read a couple of days ago what I'm about to put before you now. He disagrees with me on certain things and at certain points, but he read that and he said, that's helpful. That's, that's moving me closer. We're getting together, and I pray, and I have been praying that that will happen this morning as well. So the first thing I want us to see is that when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he was not making a good man bad. He was not making a good man bad. And I say that not only because Pharaoh was not a good man. As you read the story, there's been generations of Pharaohs. Pharaoh's more of a title than a name. There's generations of Pharaohs, and it's pretty hard to find a good one once you kind of leave the time of Joseph. I don't know that he was good, but at least he had some sense to welcome Joseph and to recognize a godly man among him. When God hardens, he's not making a good man bad. And it's not merely because we see that Pharaoh's not good, but because Scripture tells us man isn't good. And just so we're clear, women aren't good either. You almost have to say that in this age because there are politicians who want to get elected and say, vote for a woman because the men are messing this thing up. However true that is, I have no hope that changing genders will change our course. Psalm 53, 2. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. The natural state of every human being descended from Adam, of which Pharaoh was one, is to not do that which is good, but that which is corrupt and sinful. That is our bent, that is our inclination, that's the desire of our heart. Pharaoh needs no encouragement. He needs no prodding of God to do evil things. He's perfectly content. It was probably his father, but I'm assuming that the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Probably his father who had the babies drowned back in Exodus 1 or 2. Exodus 1, I believe. Whatever it is that God does when he hardens Pharaoh, he's not taking a man who is passionate about doing good and making him passionate about doing evil. No man, no woman in their fallen state is good. No one, and certainly not Pharaoh. Two scriptures that just seem to me to put this in our face in a way that maybe none others do. Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, 
and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a pretty serious indictment. Every intent of a natural man's heart, only evil continually. Ecclesiastes 9.3, Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. No one who reads Scripture and takes it at all seriously can walk away and say, you know, people are basically good. Can't read it and conclude that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. But in trying to establish that Pharaoh acted exceedingly wicked, because that's just how all people are, the objection could be raised, and it's a good one. It's an important one, and it will help us today. The objection could be raised, well, I look around, and I see most people behave decently. I see most people that make no claim to faith or Christianity behave decently. They go to work, pay taxes, raise their kids, feed their kids, go play softball with their neighbors, cut their grass. They're just people, and they're okay. They're my neighbors. They're my co-workers. I enjoy going to lunch with them. Where is this insanity and this wickedness that you're talking about? How do we explain? Because that's true. That's where I live as well. I live with people who say, I'm not a Christian. When I say live, I don't mean in my home. I mean at work and neighborhood. I live with people who make no claim to be a Christian, and yet they're decent I just read, I think it was yesterday, there was a veteran, 67 years old. He died. Some of you might have seen this story. In Michigan, no family. Apparently never married, no kids. Few friends, kind of a quiet guy. And the person who was kind of making arrangements, a friend of his, thought it would be nice, even though he doesn't have family, it would be nice if a few people showed up at his funeral. So they posted something on Facebook to say, hey, you know, he passed, funeral such and such a time. Uh, encourage a few of you to come. 3,000 people showed up. It's in Michigan. Some came from Florida. I have no idea the condition of any of their hearts. I have no idea if he was a believer, if any of them were believers. But they did something decent. And they did something honorable. And they did something that, that I looked at and got a little bit of a lump in my throat. This is a good thing that they did. Where's all this wickedness? Where's all this insanity that the Bible talks about? Well, there's at least two answers to that question. One being, the image of God remains in even fallen men and women. That's why Jesus can say, you know something, when your kid asks you for a loaf of bread, you're not going to give him a stone. He says, you're evil, but there's enough of the fatherly image in you from God that you'll do what's right. So there's that image of God that, that is at work in even very fallen people. But I think there's another reason, and it's much more helpful as we consider Pharaoh and hardening. Scripture speaks again and again of God holding people back from all the evil that they otherwise might do. There's, there's many examples. I'll give you just a few. In Genesis 20, Abraham once again passes Sarah off as his sister. Don't be too hard on him. When a king desires a woman and her brother is with her, he takes the woman 
and gives the brother some sheep and oxen. When a king desires a woman and her husband is with her, he makes her a widow and takes her. Abraham doesn't want to die. I'm not defending him, but I will explain. There's a reason for why he did. So Abimelech takes Sarah, but God is not going to let Abimelech sleep with Sarah. The time for the promised son is approaching, and there better not be a question of whether Sarah is pregnant by Abraham or pregnant by Abimelech. So God restrains Abimelech from actually approaching her, and he says in Genesis 20, verse 6, I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. We're not told how he did that, but we are told that he did that. Abimelech had sinful intentions. He was going to take Sarah. And God says, no, you won't. I will not let you. The same sort of thing is found in 1 Samuel 25. A man named Nabal refuses food for David and his men as they're fleeing Saul. David is furious. He's going to take vengeance on Nabal. He's going to kill every male in Nabal's household. Nabal's wife, Abigail, comes out and says, don't do that. Here's food. Don't treat my husband according to the foolishness that, that he has shown. And here's how she describes what she did. 1 Samuel 25. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. David was about to sin by avenging himself. Abigail intervenes but describes her intervention as the Lord restraining David from sin. And then David says, I see it the same way. 1 Samuel 25, 34, this is David speaking. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. David had wicked intentions. The Lord restrained him. Most of us know the story of Balaam, the prophet hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse Israel. God says, don't do it. Balaam goes anyway because there's a lot of money at stake. He's riding his donkey, and God sends an angel with a sword, stands in front of the donkey. The donkey, and this is what an indictment. The donkey can see him and Balaam can't. And the donkey stops. You know the story. They start beating the donkey. The donkey speaks and says, what are you beating me for? Peter, in 2 Peter, describes this event. I love it when the New Testament gives us inspired commentary on the Old Testament so that we know that we know we're on the right track. Here's what Peter says about that incident. 2 Peter 2.16, But Balaam received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a dumb donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Balaam is held back. He is restrained by God. One more example. The rulers of Israel had Jesus in their sights for a long time before they actually killed him. John 8, 
John 10 and John 11 all say, we want to stone this guy. But they don't stone him. Scripture says they're not able, for some reason, to act on this fervent desire to commit what would be the greatest possible sin in all of human history and kill the Son of God. Why couldn't they act on that? They had power. They had armed temple guards. He was with them in the temple day after day. John 7.30. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Folks, it's not the Pharisees setting the hour. It's God setting the hour. And when that hour had not come, you can have people with murderous rage against the Son of God and the power to carry it out, and it's not going to happen because God will use whatever means he needs and wants to restrain it. But the hour does come, doesn't it? It comes. Jesus is brought before Pilate in John 19, verse 10. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Do you hear it? Wicked Pilate, just like wicked Pharaoh, thinks he's in control, thinks he's the ultimate authority, thinks his will can be imposed. And Jesus says, you can't do a thing unless my Father lets you. So my conviction, as I try to put together all that Scripture says, is that our hearts are inclined to evil of every sort and an all-powerful God restrains most of it. A good deal of it is restrained through just common grace. I don't want to go to jail and so there's certain things I'll obey. I don't want you to think poorly of me and so I might restrain myself from certain things. But at the end of the day if you think that God could just let you go Take all common grace away, all restraining grace away, all indwelling influence of the Holy Spirit away, and that you would be just fine? You're reading Scripture very differently than I read it. I would be like Pharaoh, and so would you. I believe that's what's happening when we read of God hardening Pharaoh. Common graces are removed, restraining graces are removed, and a very powerful man is free to do what Genesis 6 says, express that every intent of his heart was only evil continually. Or, if you want something a little more contemporary in the language of Romans 1, God simply gives Pharaoh over to do what is in his heart. Well, how do we respond to this? I've argued that the hardening of Pharaoh is a prominent theme in Exodus. 18 separate references means we cannot ignore it. We ought to respond to prominent themes. I've argued that it's a purposeful theme. We're told repeatedly it happened so that the Egyptians might know that the Lord is God, that the world might know that the Lord is God. 
and have argued that God uses, as far as he reveals it, this is where the mystery is, so I, I realize there's unanswered questions, but as far as he reveals things to us, he uses a just means in the hardening of Pharaoh, not acting to make a good man bad, but acting to withdraw grace from a man whose heart is already fully given to insanity and evil. We ought to respond to a God who restrains the evil in our hearts. Our heart. But how should we respond? Well, two out of many that may be appropriate are in the title of the message today, and they are humility and hope. And we'll wrap up with this. The humility I have in mind springs from the awareness that God could let me go. Or let you go as he did Pharaoh, and I could not fault him. He doesn't owe me anything. We might try to judge him. Paul anticipates many people will try to judge him, hence what he writes in Romans 9, but the judgment would not hold up. The potter has rights over the clay. We may not like it, we may not understand it. It may be something that is a mystery to us, but we don't get to question the justice of it. I don't get to have my standard and say, God, will you measure up? There's mystery here, but our response to mystery should not be to insist that God tell us the secret things, but that we humbly accept and obey those things he has revealed to us. And what he has revealed to us is first humbling. There's an unrighteous, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are more like Pharaoh <clears throat> than most of us would care to admit. If we had his power and God simply let us go, I tremble at what we would do. Let me ask you just a personal question. Is it your conviction, even perhaps once you are saved, that if God simply left you alone, you'd be okay? You'd do well? You'd be a righteous, good person? It's not my conviction. It's my conviction that I need him every hour. I need common grace. I need saving grace. I need restraining grace. Every hour. Paul says in Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So God must be at work in me to will and to do for his good pleasure or all my efforts to work out my salvation with fear and trembling will be just self-righteous garbage before God. And that's humbling. It's humbling to actually accept the picture that Scripture paints of mankind in their natural state and not say, well, that's Pharaoh. That's Pilate. That's Judas. But it's not me. No, it's me. It is good to be humbled because otherwise you will never cry out to God, save me and mean it. I love what happened with the Philippian jailer. He is against God, probably ignoring God 
to be fair. Carrying out the will of another wicked ruler in the emperor of Rome. Beating God's servants, throwing them in jail. They sing hymns. God sends a miracle. And the response of this jailer to find out he's on the wrong side of everything is what must I do to be saved? Humility is a wonderful thing. It's good to be humble because God then looks upon you with mercy and forgiveness and love and redemption. Isaiah 66, 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And that's where I'll transition from humility to hope because I want God to look upon me that way. I want him to look upon me with favor. I want him to look upon me saying, nothing will snatch you out of my hand. If you want hope that God will look upon you that way, humility is not only good, it is essential. Isaiah says we need to tremble at his word and obey him as he tells you, listen to my son, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It's not just listening to God, it is listening to Jesus. When you do that, you will find a gracious God, one who takes far more delight in welcoming you as a vessel of mercy than he ever would in making you a vessel of his wrath. He has both. They're not equal in what brings him delight and what brings him pleasure. Humility before God leads to a great hope in God because God loves humble sinners. The story of the Pharisee and the tax collector is probably a good way to end. Let me paraphrase it very shortly and use it with some Exodus references. You know the story. The Pharaoh distances himself. Two men go up to the temple to pray. Pharisee, a tax collector. The Pharisee first distances himself from the tax collector. Looks up to heaven and he says, I thank thee, God. This is where the paraphrase comes in. I thank thee, God. I'm not like Pharaoh not cruel, I'm not hard-hearted, I'm not unreasoning. I'm not even like that guy. I'm a good person. I do things right, I fast, I tithe. The tax collector, as you know, prays like this, have mercy on me because I am just like Pharaoh. And Jesus said, it's the person who knows what's in their heart who is humbled before God, who cries out for mercy that goes down to his house justified. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father God, I wish, I wish we were in Psalm 23. I wish we were in the priestly prayer or the upper room discourse but we're in exodus and it's a hard word and a confrontational word that God puts before us my prayer is that we will not push back against it but instead be humbled before it because we believe you that you are opposed to the proud but you give grace to the humble and nothing will humble us like looking in our own heart, looking in the mirror 
and saying, what would I be like if God did not restrain me? If there were not graces of every sort that were being poured into my life? Father God, may we treasure those graces. May we treasure the gospel. May we be done with thinking how good we really are and understand how broken we really are and how much we need your grace, which is, is, which is ours in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks, Bruce. Church, would you stand? We want to respond now to the Lord. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come and be at the front. If you'd like to receive